0: We'll <music> be Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel reading. This is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel, and you would be most welcome. Just email me for the details. But it is here for you to benefit from, and I hope it enhances your experience of the Mass. So without further ado, enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come Holy Spirit. We praise you, God. We praise you, Jesus. Fill this place with your presence. Lord God, we give you thanks and praise for the opportunity to dive once again into sacred scripture, to allow your word to speak to us, to breathe life into our weary bones. We pray, Lord, in the ways that we are searching and seeking, that we are lost or worried or anxious, that you would bring comfort, guidance, and direction. We pray, God, for clarity and that the Holy Spirit would be felt and present among us as we share and we seek to understand in a deeper way the words of the Bible. Guide us during our time tonight if there's anything distracting us, worrying us, weighing heavily on our hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would remove those things, cast them out in your name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, so we can feel and experience your peace and be ready, open, and attentive to whatever you have in store for us tonight. Open our hearts, our minds, and our ears to receive. We pray all of this in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome. So great to be with all of you. We are in Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 1. We'll be reading verses 1 through 8. So as always, we are studying the gospel for this upcoming Sunday. This upcoming Sunday is the second Sunday of Advent. Oh, happy Advent, by the way. Happy New Year. Um, So second Sunday of Advent. We started Advent yesterday, which is the beginning of our liturgical year. And we are in a new cycle of readings. Uh, the Gospel of Mark is the predominant gospel of cycle B, which we are in in the three-year cycle of the Sunday readings. So we had kind of a, a first Sunday of Advent reading from the Gospel of Mark that was similar to the readings we've been having toward the end of the year about stay watchful, be alert, the second coming is, is in this of this age. Now we're shooting to the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, To read about the beginning of Jesus's earthly life and ministry as we kind of continue this journey through the season of Advent. So that's why we're at the very beginning of Mark. Uh, We're, as I said, be reading Mark chapter 1 verses 1 through 8. Now Mark is very fast. It's the shortest of all Gospels. It was the earliest written to get the message of Jesus Christ out there. Uh, What takes Matthew and Luke four chapters in their Gospels to write Mark does in the first 13 verses of his his book. So he's just getting to the point, wants you to know about the ministry of this person of Jesus Christ. We have no birth narrative. We have nothing before Jesus being 30 years old in the Gospel of Mark. He gets right to it. Mark was a traveling companion of both Peter and Paul. He was believed to be the cousin of Barnabas, who was another uh, traveling companion of Paul. Uh, but predominantly, he, uh, he traveled with Peter, and he learned a lot of this firsthand from Peter. So the Gospel of Mark is sometimes nicknamed the Gospel of Peter. We're seeing kind of Jesus through Peter's eyes, uh, and that's relayed to us through Mark. So uh, with that being said, let's read through our Gospel for this evening. Uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. We'll read it twice through. First time through, just get a picture for what is being said. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. John the Baptist appeared in the desert, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. People of the whole Judean countryside and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they acknowledged their sins. John was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He fed on locusts and wild honey. And this is what he proclaimed. One mightier than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop and loosen the thongs of his sandals. I have baptized you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So we get right into it. We're going to read through this a second time. Now that you have a picture for the beginning scene, this uh, prophecy about John the Baptist being the messenger of the one uh, who will uh, be the one making way for the Lord, the Messiah, to come. Uh, Second time through, now listen, see if there's a particular word or phrase that strikes you. Okay, you don't have to know what any of this means. This is not to theologically interpret this passage. I want you to listen and see what strikes you in this. What detail, what word, what phrase relates to your life, and what's going on uh, in your world, what sparks a thought, a memory, something that's personal to you, reflect on that. Why is the Lord having this stand out? What is he trying to say specifically to you? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the desert Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. John the Baptist appeared in the desert, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. People of the whole Judean countryside and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, as they acknowledged their sins. John was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist. He fed on locusts and wild honey. And this is what he proclaimed. One mightier than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop and loosen the thongs of his sandals. I have baptized you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to take a few moments to look back over this Gospel passage. What stood out to you? Why do you think it did? What questions do you have? If you're watching or listening to this later, please let us know what your questions are. But for those of us here, take about the next 10 minutes to share with those at your table what resonated with you and why, and what questions do you have, and then we'll bring them back to the larger group for some teaching and Q&A. It's a very jam-packed passage, so uh, hopefully I can bring a little bit of clarity to this. So first of all, a little bit about Mark. We are going to be in the Gospel of Mark for predominantly this entire year, except for different Uh, liturgical seasons where we have sprinklings of the Gospel of John. Um, But the Gospel of Mark is structured in a way, it's in three parts. The first part is basically from chapters 1 to about halfway through chapter 8, and they're establishing who is this Jesus person. Establishing the identity of Jesus as, as the very first line of the Gospel says, Jesus Christ, meaning Messiah, His name Jesus means Yahweh saves. So God saves, He's the Messiah, He's the Son of God. So the whole first eight chapters of of Mark are devoted to that. In each one of the three sections, there's kind of a declarative phrase. This happens shortly after this in the first section at the baptism of Jesus, where the clouds open up and say, behold, this is my beloved son. You know, do as he tells you or listen to him. Uh, With you, I'm well pleased. Sorry, is what it says. Um, That's the first section. The second section is, uh, and they're in Galilee this whole time for the most part. They're in Galilee. The second section is from the rest of chapter 8 all the way through 10, and that's on the way to Jerusalem. And during that time, they have the transfiguration, the heavens open, and God says, this is, behold, behold, my beloved son, listen to him. And then the rest of it is in Jerusalem, the final events of Jesus's life. And the declarative phrase comes from the mouth of the centurion who says, surely this man was the son of God. So there's these three kind of bold declarations about the identity of Jesus in all three parts or sections of the Gospel of Mark. And his whole job in this Gospel is to communicate to you that Jesus is both the fulfillment of the Jewish prophecies of the Messiah and he is the Son of God. Because a lot of people didn't understand, and it wasn't really explicitly said, that the Messiah would be divine or would be God. The Messiah would be someone in the line of Moses, like a prophet in the line of David, not the lineage of Moses, but someone like Moses, but in the actual lineage of David. And so they expected a political ruler, a king, someone like King David to come and save them from Roman oppression. And so already they have that stacked against them because Jesus does not fulfill any of those characteristics. So that's why Mark spends all of this time at the beginning of his gospel kind of beefing up Jesus's resume to show there's something divine and supernatural about this person and that he does fulfill all of these expectations and prophecies, just he didn't fulfill them in the way that you expected. Okay, So that's kind of the structure of the Gospel of Mark. I talked a little bit already about who Mark is. Um, but this begins with a different figure, and that is John the Baptist. Okay, So who is John the Baptist? We learn from the Gospel of Luke that John the Baptist is the second cousin of Jesus. Uh, Mary, Jesus' mother, and Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, are cousins. And Elizabeth and Zechariah are in old age. Zechariah is a priest who serves in the temple and they have a prophecy or an angel comes to them and says that they'll be with child. Uh, Zechariah, because he's disbelieving, is struck mute. Uh, And then uh, Mary encounters them later on when she's pregnant. uh, And both uh, John the Baptist acknowledges uh, by leaping in the womb that Jesus is the Son of God, um, even in the womb. And so John the Baptist, clearly, even from in the womb, has this role to kind of signify the divinity of Jesus. So they they are related. They would have known each other, but they grew up in different areas, so they probably wouldn't have been around each other all the time, definitely for the high holy feasts, special family occasions. They would have seen each other at least a few times a year for the pilgrimage feasts and things like that. But I love how John is introduced in this Gospel. right? You have this prophecy, which we'll talk about in a moment, And then in verse 4, John the Baptist appeared in the desert. Just just plop, out of nowhere. Uh, And I like that because uh, it's it's very similar to the person that John the Baptist is trying to embody and that Mark is trying to communicate. John the Baptist is like this person from the Old Testament. And that's Elijah. Elijah is exactly the same thing. In 1 Kings, I think, around chapter 17, it just says, Elijah the Tishbite appeared in the desert, or something to that effect. And so he's trying to communicate John the Baptist is like Elijah the prophet. Elijah was believed to be one of the greatest of prophets of the Old Testament, um, the first of kind of the formal prophets. Moses was a prophet, but he really had a particular role to lead the Hebrew people out of slavery. So the first kind of formal prophet uh, is Elijah. And Elijah has all these miraculous things associated with, he actually multiplies loaves uh, in a smaller degree uh, in 1 Kings. And then in 2 Kings, Elijah is assumed body and soul up into heaven, Uh, before the witness, the testimony of his protege, Elisha. And Elisha sees this happen. He reports that this happened. So Elijah was believed to to be the person who would return to usher in the coming of the Messiah because he was taken up body and soul. He had this very special privilege uh, and relationship with God. So it was just associated with a lot of these prophecies that when the Messiah would come, Elijah would return. Some thought maybe the new Elijah would be the Messiah, but something about Elijah showing back up signified the messiah would be coming. And so Elijah is described in I believe this is second oh no I'm sorry second kings chapter 1 verse 8 he he wore a hairy garment with a leather belt around his waist. It is Elijah the Tishbite he exclaimed. And so again he's just kind of out of nowhere. The same garb that John the Baptist is wearing out in the middle of the desert. So this is not common. I, I wouldn't believe to like be out in the middle of nowhere wearing camel's hair with a leather belt, uh, eating wild locusts and honey. This is not the average life or everyday activity of a Jewish person at the time. Okay, so he would have been seen as kind of a fringe person, but it would have been very clear when they would see John the Baptist. That's what we heard about Elijah. Everybody knew their scripture. Everybody knew their Old Testament. They would have looked at John the Baptist and they would have said, "That's Elijah. That's Elijah." John the Baptist was also a Nazarite. We learn this in Luke chapter 1, I think around verse 15. A Nazarite in Numbers chapter 6 specifies a person, man or woman, who is preserved or consecrated uh, from birth usually, but sometimes they take this vow later in life, that they would never touch strong drink, they would never approach anything or touch anything that was dead, and they would never cut their hair. So it was a sign of their consecration. So some people who had a Nazarite vow, um, Samson, the prophet, he had his long hair that couldn't be cut. That's where his power was. Paul, for a time, had a Nazarite vow temporarily. And John the Baptist is one of these people. Uh, And he's a living representation of holiness. So that people see him and they see that's what it means to follow God. Okay, But this guy looks like a fringe Old Testament prophet. He wears weird things. He eats weird things. He's out in the middle of the desert. Okay, He just appears there. And where he is, is at the Jordan River, but particularly at the Jordan River, right where it flows into the Dead Sea, because that's where it kind of is, is calm enough for people to be baptized and people to cross. But if you've ever been to the Holy Land in that area, it is completely dead and desolate. There's no like greenery there. It's like out in the middle of nowhere. mean, you just go out to Palm Springs and you see this little trickle like through the desert. Like that's basically what it's like. And so imagine some guy with hair that he's never cut, who eats bugs and honey in the desert and is covered in animal hair, starts yelling out in Palm Springs, repent! <laughs> we're probably going to stay pretty clear, right? Like we're not all flocking to see, maybe just to like take a picture and leave, but like we're not all flocking to hear this message of this guy and be baptized by him. And yet hordes of people are coming to hear him. It's clear there's something about this person. Luke even says this, that he was anointed with the Holy Spirit even from the moment he was in the womb. So there's something particularly special about this guy. And people were hungering for a prophet. You see, a prophet had not come for several hundred years. We read this in 1 Maccabees chapter 9. In verse 27, it says, there was great tribulation in Israel, the like of which had not been seen since the time prophets ceased to appear among them, which at that point had been for about 150 years. So people are in turmoil because the prophets were showing up to tell them, here's when you're in trouble. Here's when you need to turn back to the Lord so bad things won't happen. So you won't get yourself in a destructive situation and people will come destroy the temple or take you out of your homes. This, they hadn't had any warning. There were no prophets around them for hundreds of years. And so it's no wonder this person, as crazy as he looks out in the middle of the desert, starts speaking like a prophet. People finally are refreshed, listening and hungering for the word of God to go out and to hear what he has to say. Looking like Elijah, being associated with the prophecies and the fact that a Messiah would come. And that's why Mark paints this picture before he even introduces John the Baptist, he gives these prophecies. These prophecies are a combination of words from Exodus chapter 23, from Malachi chapter 3, and from Isaiah chapter 40. Behold, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. Messenger in, uh, in, in this language is angelon, angel, it's where we get the word angel in Greek. Um, I'm sending my angel ahead of you is a word from, or a, a verse from that passage in, in, in Exodus, about the Exodus and wandering through the desert. And then from Malachi, chapter 3, Behold, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. And then from Isaiah, A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. So it's clear that Mark knows his scripture. He knows and has knowledge of other people's awareness of the prophecies about the Messiah. He's weaving them together in such a way to show this is about the Messiah. And you all know that when the Messiah is going to come, Elijah is going to precede him, a messenger, one making a way in the desert. And then, boom, he introduces John the Baptist, who looks, acts, sounds just like Elijah. That's why people were so excited to go out into the middle of nowhere and see this happen. Also, where John the Baptist is, forgot to mention this, uh, is uh, geographically the lowest place on earth signifying that like people were going there to acknowledge their sins, acknowledge the lowest places within them in order to be transformed. The wilderness is a place of transformation, a place of change, a place of danger, a place where the Hebrew people wandered for 40 years, where Jesus was tempted for 40 days. It's a place of encounter, a place where you go out and you seek to return different. This place in the Jordan was also where two significant events happened in the Old Testament, at least two. One is where Joshua, who took over for Moses, after leading the people through the desert for 40 years with Moses, crossed the river to enter the Promised Land, and just like Moses parted the Red Sea, he actually parts the River Jordan, and they all cross at this exact point. And in one other instance, Elisha, the protege of the prophet Elijah, encounters a leper named Naaman the Syrian. And he comes, and he hears about Elijah, and he says, if you want to be cleansed, go cleanse in the Jordan River seven times. And he leaves and he's like, this guy, I thought he was going to do something miraculous. And one of his servants is like, you know, you could just like listen to him because he's pretty like important. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. He's pretty important. Like what's it going to hurt if it doesn't work? And he goes and he cleanses in this exact spot in the Jordan River and he is cured of his leprosy. Okay. So this is a place of deep healing, transformation, the history of the Hebrew people entering the promised land, this place of transition. He's in this liminal space where people are being invited, being invited to consider where they've been, and this wandering they've been having spiritually, and if they would like to repent and be led to that place where the Lord is calling them. That's why people are attracted. That's why people are coming. That's why people are confessing their sins. Yeah, I think that's all I'll say about that for now. Um, The one phrase that stood out to me that I wanted to share was uh, that they acknowledge their sins. That they acknowledge their sins. This thing is like I mean we talked last week about the fact that you can't earn your salvation. And so a lot of this is on Jesus obviously and he's already done that work on the cross but the one thing that is on us is this part. We need to repent. We need to acknowledge our sins, we need to name those struggles and allow the Lord and what he did on the cross to claim them for us so that we can be free. There's a lot a lot of tendencies to kind of run from the problem or pretend there's not even a problem there. To put a mask on and act like everything's fine. You know, I'm just, I'm, I'm just like everybody else. Or this thought like everybody around me is holier than I am. So I kind of have to pretend, right? We kind of fall into that imposter syndrome. And this is why at the very beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, there's an invitation to acknowledge your sins. Acknowledge your sins. I, it was interesting, a number of years ago, I wrote this worship song. That has the Lord's, or not the Lord's prayer, the sinner's prayer in it. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the Living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I was playing it at an event. I won't say where. And uh, the priest came up to me after, and he was like, "You know what? You really shouldn't have played that song. It's you know, we shouldn't really be talking about people being sinners." And I was like, "Then what the heck are we doing here? Like, why does the church exist?" And I was just like, "Okay, Father, you know, but like whatever." But I was like, it got me so mad. I was like, "Then what? Who cares? (laughs) Like, that's the whole point." Of coming to Christ is acknowledging like I am a sinner who needs saving and if we don't do that we shy away from it sometimes because we think if we talk about sin or even if we talk about hell people will automatically interpret it as judgment and condemning and that's not why we talk about it we talk about it because in order to understand the good news you have to understand how bad the bad news is and the bad news of sin points us even more deeply to the salvific good news of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross And so we have to acknowledge our sins. And so the very first words of Jesus in this gospel happen shortly after this in verse 15. And that's what he says. This is the time of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's all it takes. But that is the first step. Every time we go to confession, your confession does not begin when you walk in the confessional or when you say your examination of conscience. The first step of any confession, it says this in the catechism, is repentance, contrition, sorrow for your sins that's when it happens. And if that is not part of your confession, your confession is not valid. If you're not repenting of your sins, if you're not really sorry, and you're treating confession like a band-aid that like, well, I made a boo-boo, but I know that Jesus gave his confession so that if I die, then I won't go to hell. That's not a valid confession. When you go to confession, you have to be sorry and you are committing to try your darndest to not commit that sin again. And we're imperfect. you know. We know that there's a likelihood we will obviously sin again, you know, but we have to, with all of our desire and perseverance, admittedly say like, I don't want to do this anymore. Otherwise we're going in there and we're lying. We're saying we want to be forgiven, but we're not showing it. We're not feeling sorry. We're not repenting and actually turning away from our sins. So how are you being called during this Advent season to acknowledge those things in your life that are obstacles for the Lord to come to you? I love that phrase, make straight his paths. Make straight his paths. I grew up in the mountains, and there was a lot of uh, clearing of brush from paths in the forest that often would have to happen by us in the area that we lived or by fire, uh, fire rangers or people like that to go out and make sure that the areas where people would hike were safe. And that involves moving obstacles out of the way so that the path is cleared. Okay, God chooses how and when He's going to come to us, but He can't if we leave those obstacles in place. So it's not about us going out and finding God and chasing after him and trying to do all that work and think like, I can earn my salvation. I can get there myself. It's just simply admitting like, I'm a sinner. My path is blocked. Let me clean it up so that Jesus, when he comes to seek me out, as he always is, he can find me because I haven't put anything between me and him to block his path. So with all that being said, And uh, hopefully that helps you in your reflection during this Advent season. What else is standing out to you? What other questions do you have about this passage? Yes? We had a question about the diet. The diet, yes, a question about the diet. So locusts and wild honey, yes. So locusts are actually kosher. Uh, According to Torah law, this is in Leviticus somewhere. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 22. You are actually allowed to eat locusts. Let me see if I can find the actual verse. My Bible's a little marked up here. Uh, Hence, of these, you may eat the following: the various kinds of locusts, the various kinds of hauled locusts, the various kinds of crickets, and the various kinds of grasshoppers. So, if you're trying to be faithful to the Jewish diet, you know, might be a good thing for fasting this Advent. You can eat all the locusts and grasshoppers you like. Yep. So. But this is also associated with another prophet. Anyone know uh, the prophet who had a particular diet? Daniel. So Daniel, when he's taken to Babylon, remember the very first chapter of of Daniel, they're feeding all of the prisoners all of this like just luxurious, opulent, not good, healthy food. And Daniel and his companions, they refuse to eat it because it's not according, it's not uh, in line with their kosher laws, uh, with the Jewish dietary laws. So he makes a deal with the jailer like, okay, if you just throw out that food that the king keeps sending us, bring us vegetables. And if we we look better after a week, then just that'll be our agreement that you just keep bringing us that food. If we look sickly and you're worried about us, the fact that we're not eating because we can't touch that food, then we'll eat your food. Essentially, they eat the vegetables, they get better. So this kind of like fringe diet is also something that's in Daniel chapter one. But what I really like about these two things, the representation of locusts and wild honey. Where do you think of locusts when you think of the Bible? Egypt, Egypt, yes, the ten plagues. Okay, it's one of the plagues of ancient Egypt. Where is associated with wild honey? The, The promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. So Elijah, in himself, and his diet, is representing kind of the, the distance between plague and promise. You know, suffering and fasting and abundance and opulence. He's kind of in this liminal in-between space. He's representing physically in his very diet and all he is, and actually where he's geographically located too, this passage between the old way of suffering and sin and plague and this new way of the promise and the land and the abundance that God Has been faithfully giving to us generation after generation. That he is going to continue to be faithful to his promises. So even just in the symbolism of his of his diet, these two things, we have this kind of interesting in between place that Levi is uh, that Levi that Elijah is occupying. I'm so used to saying my son's name and telling him not to do things. Um, Elijah, yes. I just you're probably not old enough to remember, but there was actually a book called the Daniel Plan. The Daniel Plan, yes. Yeah. It is a diet book. Yes. Yeah. So people do this for Lens. Yeah. I had a friend who did this for for many years when I was in graduate school. I was in graduate school with a friend, an older woman who knew about this plan and she told me about it and I was like, oh, I'm going to do that. I had done like P90X and all this stuff and I'm like, I know how to like work out and be on a diet. And I did that for like a day and a half and I was like, this is the worst thing that has ever happened to my body. And I stopped. Um, Because it's all like lentils and vegetables and the gross areas of the store. I never go, you know, basically. So, um, in my opinion. So, but yeah, it's a serious like plan. Like you can do this and it actually is supposed to like make you feel very, very good once you get over the misery of the beginning and everything getting out of your system that I was not strong enough to overcome. Um, So if you want to do the Daniel fast or the Daniel plan, as it it used to be called, uh, you can still do that. And it aligns with the things that Daniel did in the Old Testament. So, yeah. Other uh, questions? Thoughts? Things that stood out to you? Things you were chatting about? Yes? Why John know what border, what, what to give an instruction Well, we don't have any reports, so this is speculation. Um, first of all, we know that John was, as I said, animated by the Holy Spirit from the moment he was in the womb. We, we read that in Luke chapter 1. So he had a unique relationship with God and a unique Clarity and the charisms to be able to commune with God that weren't not yet available to everyone because Pentecost did not happen The Holy Spirit was not available to everyone at least in in an explicit way Holy Spirit was still operating and working But not this outpouring that we see in Acts chapter 2 that was reserved for certain individuals John the Baptist being one of them Jesus being another so he had that kind of unique relationship That's why Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 11 he says uh, there is no none greater in the world than John the Baptist, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So John the Baptist had this very privileged position. He had this privilege, probably, knowledge of and connection to God and what God's plan for him was. But it's also believed that John was associated with this group of people in Qumran called the Essenes. And the Essenes were kind of this, like, fringe group, kind of like another group, like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, etc., the Zealots, the Essenes were this group. Uh, Qumran is associated with the Dead Sea Scrolls, so if you've ever heard of them, this was this group who, who had these scrolls. They did a lot more ritual and ceremonial washing than some of the other groups. They had messianic expectations that were more in line of a person like Moses or Elijah than expecting a person like David, so they were a little more kind of on it in terms of their expectations, uh, and they lived very ascetic lifestyles, meaning they they adhered to strict fasting, prayer, and almsgiving, and that was their lifestyle. So in comparison to the community that he lived in, John the Baptist was not that weird, but him compared to everyone else, yes, it was a very fringe kind of life. Uh, But because of that lifestyle and being out in the wilderness, living a different way of life, a different pace of life, having different expectations, and knowing the scriptures very well, and having that extra kind of connection and knowledge of God by virtue of having the Holy Spirit, He probably had an inclination of of who he was and what he was supposed to do. Um, He acknowledged Jesus, like I said, from the moment he was in the womb. So before he was even born, there's biological, physical, recorded evidence that John the Baptist kind of knew what he was doing in the presence of Jesus. So um, yeah, but we don't have any explicit instructions being given to him or to his parents. Only the instruction to his parents that he will make way for the Lord. That's just what they're promised by the angel Gabriel. And they're faithful to that, and they obviously translated that faithfulness and that message to their son. Um, but we don't have any other explicit information of how he knew exactly what to do. But the ritual ceremonial washings, the repentance of sins, those are things that might be arguably a little more common for their community. But still, this was not something that was happening before. So ritual washings were things that you would either do if you were Jewish to prepare for a ritual or a sacrifice or something like that if you were a priest, but it had nothing to do with conversion or if you were a Gentile that converted to Judaism, you would go through a ceremonial washing, kind of like an early baptism or an early idea of a baptism. But for an existing Jewish person to go through a baptism or repentance of sins with a water-like purification, that did not exist. It was kind of like he was, they were putting these two pre-existing things together and making something new. So it's not as if John the Baptist is doing something completely out of left field. He is piecing together existing things that look familiar, probably to make it more palatable for people to be comfortable comfortable approaching baptism. But this was still something that didn't exist before. Yeah. John? Yeah, there's uh, the sandals. Uh, uh, verse. Yes. Like there's three other places in the Bible that I know about sandals. Or, mm-hmm. like, yes. Like Jesus washing the apostles' feet. Yes. Uh, um, Taking the feet off, yes, the dust off your feet. Mm-hmm. If they don't accept, mm-hmm. and then uh, Moses being told to take off your sandals. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, uh, there's a lot of conflicting. Like, what is what is really meant? Is he going the, the Moses route? Mm. Like, in one instance, you take the dust off your feet. It's kind of like uh, screw you, you know? Like, yes. So, yeah. So, it, it, what, is there some connection there that? I mean, maybe I'm the only one who feels there's some relation there. Between yeah. This. Yeah. Um, I've never thought about the connection to Moses with the, the feet, not wor- being worthy to loosen the thongs of his sandals and connecting it to those other places in Scripture where feet are mentioned. But I think, um, first of all, this, this act, uh, this task of loosening the thongs of someone's sandal, it was known at this time that this was a task that was so humiliating that even a Jewish servant was not allowed to do it. Only a Gentile servant was allowed to do something this demeaning for their Jewish master. So even if you were a Jewish slave, this was considered demeaning. Like you wouldn't loosen the thong of your master's sandal because the feet like your feet were very dirty traveling everywhere. Walking was very common. There wasn't the luxury of modern paved roads. You generally had one, maybe two pairs of sandals, you know, at a time if you were wealthy. Um, and so you, it was very easy to get hurt, to get cut, to bleed, and blood is the source of life. And if you come into contact with blood, you're ritually impure and you have to go through all these ceremonial washings. And so these were things that people wanted to avoid. So it was very, very demeaning, for someone to be commanded to do something that was associated with the feet. Um, however, those different instances were like, um, you're standing on holy ground not to wear shoes. Um, that might just be kind of like a, a, a purity of the connection with God, that there's no barrier, there's no separation. You know, I, I'm not aware of any other you know, symbolism or context that would make that related. But these other areas where Jesus stoops down to wash his feet, like the humility of a master to do that to his disciples is incredible. Like that's lost on us. Uh, The other place where the woman anoints Jesus' feet with perfumed oil, same thing. Using this very costly uh, ointment to get down into this very... Disgusting part of the body based on the the habits that they had and the travel habits um, of that time and that 's why shaking the dust of uh, off your feet was also considered an insult because this is you know like a, a not very favorable part of your body, how dirty and gross it is, and so to just kind of shake that at the people that you are mad at or that you think haven 't been hospitable to you is kind of layering on the severity of the insult so um, it, there I think there is some in between relationship where the feet. Are associated with something very gross and dirty and lowly, and yet there's also an opportunity for humility and reverence and holiness there because of the sacrificial nature of Jesus being willing to get down, you know, and wash wash his disciples' feet. So yeah, yeah, great point, Jared. Um. Oh, oh, yeah. Um, so were there like cobblers during that time, and that was that considered like a very really loaded job then? Um, I don't know if they'd be cobblers. They, I mean, shoemakers. People made shoemakers. You know, cobblers. I think. Oh wait, what am I thinking of? What are those things called? Clogs. I was thinking of a clogger, who makes wooden shoes. Um, so yes, there would have been the equivalent. I was like. Are you asking me if Jesus wore wooden shoes? No. Uh, so a cobbler, someone who makes shoes. Yes, there would have been people who made shoes at this time. But I don't think they would have been associated with like really lowly. Ta- I mean, that's a, an ordinary trade. But it's not like people are coming in gross. Like you would come in, your feet would be washed if you were to be sized for a shoe. It would have been like an artisan trade like any other uh, other one, like making cloth or something like that. So what's that? What about the Probably the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, if they, if they were, no, I mean, that's a good question because, you know, you can, you can have, let's say fungus on your feet. And there's a lot of, uh, instances in the old Testament and Leviticus where there's, uh, instructions for scaly infections, things that could be fungus, things that could be leprosy. That's sometimes more common with the feet. Again, bleeding with the feet and all of the ritual laws about blood. Uh, so you can read about all that in in Leviticus chapters like 13, 17, and 19. They're all in there, all of those kind of prescriptions on those things. So um, not about shoes, but about all those different fluids or situations where a person might be ritually unclean that would more likely be associated with Yes, if you want to read about biblical fluids, (laughs) wait until my next book comes out. No. Wouldn't that be amazing? The first book I ever write is on biblical fluids. (laughs) Gross. Anyways, someone's got to do it, right? Uh, (laughs) Nobody take it. Copywritten, in case I decide to do it. It's on video. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) other questions, thoughts, comments, things that stand out to you? Yeah. Was that like a, like a public confession? Yeah, very likely would have been. And in fact, in the early church, confession was public. So you would put ash and sackcloth over your body, and you would stand on the footsteps of the temple, you know, in older times, or uh, in the, the common areas, the plazas, or in the church gatherings, you'd be outside and you would announce your sins to the people. You know, so can you imagine, you know, next week, on Sunday, you come to church, and there's just a bunch of people in burlap sacks with black ash all over their face, like, I have committed adultery! I stole $1,000 from my boss! Just shouting. You'd just be like, oh my gosh, this is insane. And we get nervous about going to confession behind a closed door with a screen in front of us with complete anonymity, right? This is, so uh, the act of penance and confession was something that was slow in its evolution because it was considered very rare. People understood the effect that sin had on the community, that sin was a social, had a social factor. And anything that anything that hurts the body of Christ, there's no such thing as a private sin. Anything that we do as a member of the body of Christ that hurts us hurts the body of Christ. They understood this very well. And so if a sin was made public, everybody obviously knew about it. It was affecting the people around them. And they were usually initiated into, I don't know if you call it initiated, but they were kind of placed into an order of the penitent. And you see this in old churches, very old Catholic churches, there are different like sections of the church. And there were certain sections that you were only allowed to go into if you weren't in an order of the penitent. And they had certain certain rungs, Like if you were in the worst order, you wouldn't even be allowed in the church. And then eventually, when you're in that in that order and you haven't sinned and you're continuing to repent for maybe, I don't know, six months to a year, then you can move into the church, but you stay in the back third. And then more repentance, months, maybe years you'd come forward and you'd be in the middle part of the church. Maybe you could sit down, but you couldn't receive the Eucharist. And it was this constant kind of active repentance. I mean, everybody knew, everybody knew what you did. Everybody knew your sins because they understood really well that what affects one of us affects all of us. There's no such thing as a private sin. Any sin affects the way that you relate to yourself and your identity and the way you relate to other people. And so sin has this ripple effect out into the world, out into the church. And so they knew that very well. So that's why public confession of sins was so, it was kind of an obvious thing. Every, I mean, this is a time where you know, we didn't have as many distractions. Everybody knew everybody's business, even more so than they do now. Um, you would think we would know more because of how connected we are, but because like, the community relied so well on each other, and they were so integrated in each other's families and workplaces and religion, all of this, everybody knew what was going on. They didn't have the privacy of locked doors and soundproof windows and walls. Like you could hear everything that was going on in people's homes and arguments and things that people were doing that weren't appropriate. So you could hear, you, everybody knew they had this awareness. And so uh, there was already a public knowledge. The public confession was mainly for the person to repent and start to begin that healing. It puts in perspective how. Blessed we are to have the uh, process of reconciliation, confession that we do now. But we've lost a little bit of that idea of how our sin so um, negatively impacts the people around us and the church. You know, we think like this isn't hurting anyone. You know, this is just this is my thing. Nobody knows about this. This isn't affecting anybody else. People even get mad at the church because of the church teachings on certain things, especially in areas of sexual immorality what does the church care about what I do here in my bedroom or in the privacy of my own space? It's like, because it's hurting you and it's hurting everyone else. And if we want the entire world to be saved and know the abundance of the healing power of God, then we would have to really hate you or dislike you to not tell you that what you're doing is destructive, not only for you, but for the people around you. This is how God loves, is he loves like a father who corrects and intervenes so that we won't go further down the wrong path. So we've lost a little bit of that recognition. Thankfully, we don't have to, you know, on Sunday. Unless anybody wants to, you're welcome to. You know. <laughs> Greg. I'm always struck, uh, just like when Jesus was being uh, challenged by the Pharisees, and uh, in this verse here, five people of the whole Judea countryside and all inhabitants of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him and joined in rivers, they acknowledge their sins. Where were the Pharisees during all this time? I mean, it always seems like you know, in the gospels that we see, I mean, Jesus says something, bam, they're right there, they're mm-hmm. spies after him and all that. And here you've got this hippie out in the middle of the desert, you know no no snake, and like you don't hear anything about it. Yeah. Yeah. So where are the Pharisees? In the other gospel accounts, we do have interactions with the Pharisees. And we know that even throughout the ministry, there are others who are named as Pharisees who are secret disciples of Jesus. Nicodemus comes a little bit after that fact in John chapter three, after the baptism, but we don't know when Joseph of Arimathea encountered Jesus, when he became a disciple. And there were certainly others that are written about by Josephus, the Jewish historian that we have in other writings. And so we know that this was something that was believed and that they were there. And some of them may have even gone through this baptism or this ritual washing, um, but they still had this position that they they weren't willing to give up. In Mark, they're missing, uh, probably because at this time when Mark was written, Mark was written dur- during a time of intense persecution by the Roman emperor Nero. And so a lot of the way Jesus is presented in the gospel of Mark is like, he is the the rightful emperor and king of the world. It's really kind of a thumb at Rome, and not so much like Matthew might be putting into context the Jewish historical tension and how Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, because he was written a little bit later after some of this persecution died down for a little bit. So that might be why you don't have as many of the tense um, interactions with Jesus and the Pharisees as you do in Matthew. You, know, you have whole chapters toward the end of Matthew where Jesus just rides in to the Pharisees like we were reading in the previous weeks. You're not going to find as much of that in the Gospel of Mark because of the context of when it was written. So, but they were certainly there. I mean, the fact that it says all of Jerusalem came out, that's hyperbole. Like, it's not like the town was a ghost town. You know, there's still sacrifices that were going on in the temple, you know, but it's, it's a common use of hyperbole, a literary technique that's used all throughout the Gospels. But uh, huge throngs of people were going out to see this one fringe Elijah-looking dude in the middle of nowhere who was shouting, repent, um, because they were hungry for a prophet. They were hungry for a new way of life. And they knew that the sin was weighing on them. And remember at this time, like, if you committed a sin, you needed to afford the animal that you had to put up for a ritual sacrifice. You needed to go to the priest. You needed to tell them why you needed sacrifice. They had to do it on your behalf. It was a whole process. And it was more to show you were sorry for your sins, but there was no guarantee of forgiveness. And so anytime Jesus is speaking words of forgiveness or John the Baptist say a repentance of baptism for the forgiveness of sins, people are like, finally, finally. Finally, we don't have to go through the whole rigmarole of the temple that takes forever. Like, we can just go and confess and be forgiven of our sins. Like, maybe this guy's legit. If he's not, well, then it doesn't hurt. But if he is, like, this is incredible. There there would have been a deep kind of, uh, speaking to a deep hunger that people had for this, this relational guarantee that God was with them, that he actually was going to save them and forgive them, that was difficult to experience in that kind of temple modality, where you're always going through other people. That's why it's significant when Jesus dies, what happens? The veil in the temple is torn. It's a symbol of the fact that this is no longer needed. You're no longer separated from me. My forgiveness is not meted out to you by sacrifices and high priests, but simply through your repentance and those who I've given authority to, to forgive the serious sins that can reconcile you to the community. Yeah. Okay, yes. I going to say, it like it would be so hard to relate to the hunger that they felt because they went... To be baptized to, to an event or to be baptized in the river, which is, was not, did it go against the Jewish religion? Mm-hmm. It went against it. Yeah. So to have that deep hunger to say, and then I, we, were, we were talking, I said, were they touched by the Holy Spirit? Was something guiding them also? Mm, yeah. Uh, the Holy Spirit was certainly present. But those who were baptized by John the Baptist are rebaptized by Jesus or his disciples later on. Because there's a separation between, it says this in Acts chapter 1, John baptized you with water, but I have come to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He says that right before, he promises the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1. And it's alluded to here at the very last verse. I baptize you with water, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So this was more of like a ceremonial purification and public repentance of sins but it didn't take on the effect of a sacramental baptism until Jesus institutes baptism as a sacrament during his public ministry. Now, one final, yes? So so I just looked, it's about 25 miles from Jerusalem down to this Qumran area where he did uh, John the Baptist. Yes, yeah. So was this an overnight, obviously an overnight trip? It was not just something you did for the afternoon. Yeah, so Qumran, yes, that's where the Essenes were he migrates down to the Jordan area right by like Bethany. And so that's just a mile or two east of Jerusalem. It's not far. Yeah. So you could go out there and just like, you know, a couple hour walk, you know, depending on the the terrain, because Jerusalem is up uh, a big hill. And so you have to kind of cascade down. You're up going from 2,250 feet in elevation, Jerusalem, all the way down to the lowest geographical point on the planet. Um, I I don't know the elevation of the Dead Sea, but it's something like I know. Minus 1,400. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say 1,500. but Yeah. Minus 1,400 uh, feet below sea level. So you're descending 4,000 feet in elevation in just like a few miles. So it still would have taken some time, but you could have done it easily there and back in a, in a half a day, So or maybe a day. The way back would have been tough. <laughs> the way there, tough on the knees, but you know, yeah. Anyway, so um, with all that being said, this, this Sunday, as we hear these, these readings proclaimed, as you think about them, as we're in the midst of the Advent season, to really be invited to remember that Advent is still considered uh, in some way, uh, a lesser so than Lent, but a penitential season. That we are being called to acknowledge our sins, to recognize our need for the Savior to be born not only 2,000 years ago, not only to come again in the future, but to be born into our life each and every day so that we can respond to that free gift of salvation. He's not going to force himself on us. He's not going to remove the obstacles. He won't violate our free will. That is literally the only thing that is up to us. Everything else depends on Jesus and what he did on the cross. And we can't earn it. We can't work for it. All we can do is literally say, I want it. But sin, obstacles, they get in the way. And so how are you feeling a lack in your experience of that? How are you feeling those obstacles maybe coming to the surface as we've been talking about this tonight? What do you really need to bring to the Lord uh, in confession. Our penance service, speaking of, is tomorrow night, right? Our Advent penance service is tomorrow night here at seven o'clock in the church. And if you're nervous about going to confession with priests that you see every week, come. There'll be priests from all over that you will never see again, most likely. Um, and so go to confession with them here in the church at seven o'clock. Um, they would love to be there and help forgive your sins. So, um, but this season of Advent is about that. So be bringing that to prayer in your experience, not just the shopping, not just the gift wrapping, not just the decorating, this is, a, this is why the Catholic New Year begins with a season of preparation. Not just the celebration like we do secularly of Happy New Year. It's we are getting ready for the thing that began it all, the Incarnation. And we need to be properly disposed to receive him or it's lost on us completely. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of this time and your word. We ask that you help guide us. To have a deeper awareness of the places where we are wandering, where we are in the wilderness, where we are in a place that needs change, that needs transformation, where we are caught between the plague and the promise. We pray, Lord, that you would help us have an awareness of our need for you, an awareness of the things that prevent us from being in deeper relationship with you and hearing your voice, and that this Advent season for each of us would be uniquely devoted in each of our lives whatever that looks like, to removing those obstacles to your grace, to diving deeper into prayer, fasting, almsgiving, and relationship with you so that we can truly celebrate the joy of Christmas because we understand that the moment you were born, the moment you came to us, we were saved. And how much we need that salvation, Lord. Bless us each in the ways we most need it until we gather once again we pray all of this in your most precious name Jesus. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you sir. So-